Early in my path as a creative, I was introduced to the work of the artist and nun, Frances Elizabeth Kent. When Kent entered the Immaculate Heart of Mary Religious Order in 1936, she took the name Sister Mary Carita. The name is Spanish for Little Heart, which is ironic given her outsized love and hope for humanity. Carita went on to become an influential American artist, educator, and advocate for social justice. Through her vibrant and thought-provoking artwork and collective happenings, Sister Carita explored themes of spirituality, love, and social activism. Her unique artistic style, characterized by bold colors, innovative use of typography, and incorporation of popular culture, garnered widespread recognition and made her a prominent figure in the art world, eventually landing her on the cover of Newsweek and designing the iconic love stamp for the Postal Service. Her work is held in major museums throughout the world, and her 10 rules for the Immaculate Heart Art Department hang on many artists' studio walls. Sister Krita's art and teachings continue to inspire and provoke conversations about the human experience and the power of creativity to bring about positive change. I feel incredibly lucky to have been exposed so early in my career to such heart-centered ideas like consider everything an experiment and be happy whenever you can manage it. It's lighter than you think. And maybe my favorite, do it all with love. So today, I'm grateful to be in conversation with a steward of Sister Krita's archives and legacy, Nellie Scott. Nellie is the executive director of the Krita Arts Center in Los Angeles, California. Founded in 1997, the Krita Arts Center preserves and promotes Krita Kent's art, teaching, and passion for social justice. Today, the center supports exhibition loans and public programs, oversees image and merchandising rights, sells Krita's original prints, and serves as a resource and archive on her life and work. Nellie, it's been a true pleasure getting to know you recently, and I'm really excited to see where our conversation takes us today. So welcome to The Infinite Search. Hi, thank you. Thank you so much for um, that beautiful introduction and for having me with you today and, and, and sharing space, clearly around one of my favorite topics, <laughs> which is Karita Kent and something that I feel very lucky to be the champion for. I really appreciate you taking time and um, making some space for this conversation too. I would love to get a little bit more understanding about um, about you as a human being, and as a person, before we kind of dive into Karita's work and, and kind of our conversations around it. So I'm curious um, if we can um, learn a little bit more about where you're from and maybe even talk about what your first art moment was as a child? Oh, that is a very good question. Um, I've had the great privilege of having a very creative family that has always uh, centered exploration and creativity through asking the question, why or what if, often. Um, I'm originally from Oregon. I went to school in Portland, which uh, is a place that I still think of as home often. And then of course I moved to New York and I'm also a New Yorker at heart. And here I am in Los Angeles, blending both of those things uh, at the Carita Art Center. I wouldn't say that there was a distinct moment in my childhood that drew me to art. I can say as an art historian, the love for storytelling and understanding people that came before us and honoring them and their work has always been a driving force, wanting to know more, right? That uh, 
Indiana Jones mixed with, uh, you know, where in the world is Carmen Sandiego? <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure archivists and art historians and librarians and those that are fall within what I would say maybe that scholarly category. I think we're all just waiting to be called on to solve some great mystery with this knowledge that we've been acquiring for for decades. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. What do you think? It's funny. Whenever you use the term called on, my background was in, it has a, a deep spirituality to it. And I think about it in that term and knowing how you work with the Creative Arts Center now, what do you feel called to do? You know, when I took this position um, five years ago, I distinctly remember the interview process and walking into what the current facilities of the Creative Arts Center are. And in my mind, she's this larger than life figure and somebody who deserves to be a household name for, for all the right reasons. And I felt a calling to not only, you know, have that happen, make her a household name through our work at the Creative Arts Center and, and to share her very openly and honestly and, and make her work accessible, but also really the ethos that she shared with us during her lifetime. When I first took the position, I'm a young mother and I have a young daughter and the news cycle was, it was very um, piercing to the heart. And this question of what can we do? And I think what Krita does so well is this message of how do you use your time and talents for the greater good? And boy, do we need more of that <laughs> it, just as much as we needed it five years ago, as much as we needed it 50 years ago during her lifetime, we are really going to need it in the coming, coming year. And so that is what I feel like my calling is, is really just blowing the doors open and allowing people to have a state of discovery in the archives and the collection and to be inspired by her work. Yeah, it's beautiful. I definitely know a lot of people who are inspired by her work. I remember you asked me a question when we first talked about why you, why I think Sister Krita's work might not be recognized in the fine art world as much as, say, like the design world, which, for example, in 1996, the IGA awarded Sister Krita um, the IGA medal, which is um, like the highest uh, award that you can be presented in the in the graphic arts industry. I'm curious to now kind of throw that question back on you, why you think that's the case. That is, it is something that we think through all the time. And I think there's a larger question underneath the surface of a lot of women artists and designers and creatives. I, I What I really think is a lot of fun and something I very much enjoy, I think we've We've talked about it um, in other conversations is the state of discovery. And with her work, you know, the the largest body of work that she is most known for is her her printmaking and her incorporation of that imagery, the appropriation of all of uh, all of the everyday graphics, objects that you might walk by look at every day, such as a billboard or packaging in the grocery store. And her incorporation of that and removing the hierarchy and then having the printmaking being so democratic, I can see being a big draw for graphic designers and designers who 
are creating often with that in mind of how can I express this brand um, in in a quick second? And I think that there's an element to her work that she does that, but her messaging is really, especially prior to 68, is really kind of a humanitarian. How can I get this message, the same effect um, and tell you a story very quickly? And so I think you see that with her work. That would be my guess is maybe why there's such an affinity for her. And then I also think her, the way that she was, she was creating and her process of, you know, utilizing photography and, you know, physically manipulating newspapers and magazines and playing with typography in a way that was rather experimental. It's very proto Photoshop, the effects that she was able to achieve and then incorporate them into her serographs. Sorry, that was very long-winded. <laughs> no, that was beautiful. No, um, it also reminds me of the fact that she didn't number her prints. That's correct. So um, she really approached her prints from a, you know, very kind of conceptual practice because they were made in community. Her students were involved. They were hanging her prints for her uh, in her studio. And often the source the source material that she's incorporating in her serographs are, you know, she used a, a tool called a viewfinder where she would go out with walks with her students and this inspiration um, kind of belonging to us all. But then also the fact that one print is not more valuable than the next in that same humanitarian undertone of no human is more valuable than the next either. She also or something worth noting is her titles are all in lowercase mm. as well. Um, and so for that reason, you know, we very much approach them in, in the same spirit. There are a few she did addition that they're not completely all unadditioned, but the majority of, of the prints are unadditioned or signed unadditioned. I didn't know that she um, she didn't capitalize her, her titles. Yeah. It reminds me of the books. And so I'm like, oh. Yes, exactly. And um, she often quoted E.E. E. Cummings as well in her prints, who also, as we all know, loves <laughs> lowercase letters. So I think there was um, a bit of inspiration there. Yeah, she definitely seemed to draw inspiration from uh, anything and everything. Yes. And she was very good at citing her sources. So often when you look at her prints, if it is a Beatles lyrics, she's attributing it to them. If it is uh, poetry or a fellow professor at the Immaculate Heart College or a student in some, some cases, there's a, a lovely print from um, her earlier years of printmaking that she cites uh, William Daly as a collaborator and he was a student. He was a very young student of hers. And uh, that that brings a lot of joy, this idea that students do not come to the classroom empty and that they are also teaching us as well. I heard um, a proverb, uh, a Sufi proverb, um, that to be a great teacher, you must first be a great pupil. And this sort of reminds me of, and I just, I love that. Well, I think that's some, some of that's at the core of the 10 rules and the creation of the 10 rules, um, this idea. And it there's a, a short film that captures some of the making of the 10 rules, but 
this idea that this was made in collaboration with her classroom, asking what makes a good teacher and what makes a good student, and then blurring those lines and curating this list, I think is a, a practice a lot of educators take away from the 10 rules. Not only do they hang as this great source of inspiration, but also the activity of making the rules with your students. We know lots of educators that that's how they start their first day. Yeah, the, I would even maybe argue it's probably one of her most famous pieces of art. Yes, um, and I think that we at the center are really excited just to see it out in the world. So we're not necessarily too precious because we feel that, yes, we're the stewards of the 10 rules, but they're this great source of inspiration. They hang on studio walls. They hang in offices. Uh, they hang in some government facilities. We I've found. seen that. <laughs> yeah, we're, it's always a happy surprise when you run into the ten rules. I was really excited and surprised to learn how y'all were collaborating with new artists and designers. So, in the hints, there's ten rules plus the hints, and in the hints, there's this idea that there should always be new rules, and there's new rules next, and. I would love to learn more about what motivated this book project. I can share the new rules next week is perhaps everyone always has their favorite rule, <laughs> their rule that they're drawn to. And I'm 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 often drawn to there should be new rules next week. Uh, this grand experiment. And while there are rules that are steadfast in our practice and our lives, don't be afraid to to offer yourself flexibility and that there's still room. There's always room for improvement is the way that I take it when I read those. And that in many ways that just that little line at the very end of the 10 rules is a bit of a passing of the baton to whoever the reader might be of, okay, now go forth and, and make your own art, make your own practice, live your life. And I, that's a, a great source of inspiration for uh, both the New Rules audio project that we collaborated with Dub Lab last fall on, and then the book that was just released in June with uh, Chronicle Books with 20 different artists and writers and, and collaborators. Some of them are Korea students, some of them are Korea colleagues. It was great to see those stories encapsulated in, into such a beautiful book. As the Korea Art Center, we often receive love notes is a nice way of putting that. <laughs> the most generous humans are within our community. Her her students send us stories often. People who were either once uh, sisters with her or colleagues at the college are always very generous with sharing Karita stories. And so having this book as a tool to try to encapsulate some of that or just to get a little of it pen to paper um, was a great treat. Yeah, I'm sure that there's an amazing group of people out there doing a lot of um, heart-centered work is how I look at that. That's that's right. And I think that, um, again, I always feel like so lucky to be her champion and to be working at the Creative Arts Center and to think through how we can share this you know, our team did a lot of that heart searching, if you will, of 
what does it mean really to show up and what does it mean to steward a living legacy, especially during, during COVID and quarantine? Um, what is our role as um, essentially a small museum and artist estate uh, and a nonprofit supporting arts education? What, what, how, how can we help and where can we help and how can we do that? that is both true to our mission, but also true to these, ethos that Krita left us as a foundation. Yeah, it seems like the there's some similarities around socio and politically what's going on in our environments versus what was going on in, um, say, the mid-60s when I think about the Watts Rebellion and some other events that were going on in Southern California. It seems like there was a, a moment in Southern California that maybe not even just Sister Krita and her work kind of started to shift, but um, everyone kind of took stock of things. I think so. And I think that there's a relevancy to the work and the message. Um, we very much enjoy seeing her work hanging next to contemporary artists who are using their time and talents to address these same issues. And where can we, in the grand spectrum of things, support those artists in getting their message and their truths out? And I think when you look at the large, you zoom out, especially in the 60s with her work and the work that she was doing, there's such an opportunity to view the systems that she was working with and to change the systems, if that, that makes sense. She was both a nun within the Catholic Church that was going through a very large reform of Vatican II. And if anyone is interested, there's a wonderful documentary called Rebel Hearts that tells a very complicated story um, of the Immaculate Heart Order and um, ultimately some of the conflict around Vatican II and Cardinal McIntyre. But then also the system of, you know, she was a woman artist and creative. And, and, and of course, certainly uh, from a political perspective, she herself never never marched she knew that her role was is was in creating and creating messages um and she used her artwork as that that tool and i think that we often come back to that ourselves of you know supporting artists who are using their talents to do something similar to address the issues of today and how can the creative art center as staff do that been one of my favorite things researching and learning more about her and the way that she seemed to activate love and this call and response idea where her work wasn't necessarily just always going towards the negative of things that she really had this like um she put a lot of value in joy and not just for being happy but the it seemed like there was a power to it um and i can't remember that she didn't call it a march what did she call it Mary's Day, Mary's Day procession. The procession, that's what it was, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, just, I've always been inspired by thinking about aesthetics in that way. So Mary's Day, and I think this idea of joy and joy as resistance and joy as collective practice is really where I think Carita lives within the history of social practice art as well in creating um in creating these happenings of 
how can we center social justice issues that are affecting us today? And how can we give each other grace to come together? And that's, it shouldn't be a novel idea, but it was at that time, this idea of um, for Mary's day, um, you know, the photos that are so popular of these, these group of nuns and then women, uh, what appears to be marching with their, their signs. Um, they were gathering to center world hunger and, and poverty and, they happened, of course, the market basket was directly across the street. And, you know, you use your resources that are around you. But this idea for them in Mary's day was if, uh, from a spiritual perspective, if if Mary was alive today, she would care very much about these issues that we are facing. And how can we bring that together? And so it was very, you know, centered in faith as well. Um, primarily a humanitarian faith of what does it mean to show up for one another and what does it mean to come together for the common good? Let's put other things aside to center this conversation. And we can do that in joy, which is, I think, something that we all could maybe take away (laughs) as well as acts of resistance. And I think there are a lot of artists working now in, in, in really the last few years of also also doing that, I was greatly inspired by um, a group called the Wide Awakes and their work um, around uh, voter registration and for freedoms and this idea of creating these happenings for change. And music can be involved and art can be involved. And yes, I think there's a lot of contemporary artists that uh, are are finding that path as well and, and amplifying this this work that still that's I think some of the reason why it feels so relevant is because it's we have a longing for that as part of um, our community building. I 100% agree with you on 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 all of that. I've seen an interest in spiritual abstraction and more spiritual art lately, um, which I've I mean this is in my from list in my experience maybe the past couple of years. Um, I'm, I'm curious, I'm, I'm thinking about this sort of agency of, of an artist. And when I see a secular artist talking about the same sort of things that Sister Krita was talking about, I wonder if, or I'm curious if she had this sort of agency as a nun, um, or maybe it's a, she had the People believed her more because she was a nun. I'm curious to to dig into that a little bit more. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, this is all my opinion because I can't speak for Karina by any means. But from what I've gathered, I think a lot of her work throughout her life, both in and out of habit, is centered on the idea that we are spiritual beings having a human experience. And, And you see that you know, of course, in her work prior to 1968, especially in her corporation of using kind of this pop art uh, vernacular of there's underpinnings of spiritual messaging. For example, the Wonder Bread piece she creates in 1962 for those who may be uh, 
Catholic or from a, a religious background may see those as wafers or apostles or, you know, there's many interpretations. But it, if you are not of that faith, you also can find space to enjoy this artwork and message that she's created for you. And I think she's borrowing very much from the advertising of fifties uh, and sixties and, and onwards, but even further, just kind of zooming towards her time and her work in the seventies and eighties, um, which may be not as known at this moment, but equally centered in humanitarian practice and where her faith, while she um, had sought dispensation from her vows, is still present in the in this way of us as humans and as us as spiritual beings. Especially the uh, shortly after she uh, recovers from cancer for the first time, there's this talk that she gives called "You Are God and You Are Not." And there's actually a, a piece that she has that uses the same language. And um, our role as individuals uh, within the larger community, but also to ourself. And there's a lot of meditative practice in that work. And especially in, in her later years, she was heavily um, let her artwork heavily to uh, anti-nuclear anti war movements too. And there's this beautiful speech that hangs um, above my desk that she gives in Cambridge. And um, uh, we were, I, I reflect on it often as this idea of what, what community truly means um, and our role as individuals in that community. Profound to me. I will send that to you because it's so delightful and moving and, and I do think spiritual. It's been interesting seeing the shift or just a growing appreciation in pop culture um, for the spiritual and for a reverence for life, I guess. Right. I think um, I may have shared when we first met, um, I recently finished Rain Wilson's Soul Boom and this call for spiritual revolution. It is, it's something that's been sitting with me as well of this idea of finding our place, especially after a global pandemic, right? We were all faced with very hard truths that we still need to spend time in learning and unlearning and um, finding our place in that community. So I'm curious, Sister Krita talked a lot about, you know, taking the rules and taking these ideas and, and the future. So I'm curious what's what's in store for the future of the Krita Arts Center? Oh, that's um, a great many things. Uh, my role as the executive director, often um, I want to say yes to everything uh, because there's so many different directions to take a legacy such as Carita's. And, and we have the good fortune to be able to do that. Um, and so we have a few really great projects that we've been working on and I would love to bring in my colleague's name into the space because it's this is really, we all have our darlings at the Creed Art Center, our, yeah. our projects that we've been championing. And she has done such a beautiful job of championing the digitization of our collection. So Olivia Shaw, who is our senior curator for the, the past few years, has been working on uh, digitizing nearly 20,000 photographs that we have in the collection that were 35 millimeter slides. 
Um, and we've been doing a lot of work in thinking through those. Um, and she recently was awarded the Tiger Foundation grant um, to help think through how we will exhibit those and how we will introduce them. And so kind of a stay tuned there. And then one of my, my own darlings is really uh, Carita Studio and the historical monument status that we were able to achieve um, locally here in Los Angeles and our, our hope to potentially see it nationally designated. Uh, that's certainly a dream of ours. So we're going to keep keep at it. <laughs> of course. No, I, and I can't wait to see to see that national register with her name on it. Uh, me, likewise, I think um, not to, to soapbox too much, but I think the reflection of the monuments and um, whose history um, we're remembering, how we're remembering, how we're remembering spaces that we, that are not made of marble. How do, you know, spaces where uh, change happens, you know, often these conversations start in people's living rooms and how are we honoring that, that essential part of, of history as well and these larger social movements and I think about her studio and not only the work she was doing there but also the people that came through that space and and it is an ordinary building it is something you would walk by every day and that's some of the magic of it <laughs> it is I think yeah to your point the the idea that the mundane or that the everyday life is is a piece of art I think that that's really speaking to the heart of of what she was about Right, exactly. And and so, yes, many great things at the Creed Arts Center, but that's really our, our two areas of focus at the moment um, at, that I can talk about. <laughs> of course. Um, what's a question I haven't asked you yet? There's so much history. It's like, instead of seven degrees of Kevin Bacon, it's seven <laughs> degrees of Carita. <laughs> like, yeah, definitely. Um, her impact on... Uh, on not only the arts, but design, but social movements, it really is uh, miraculous that we are constantly in a state of discovery. Yeah. And then more people don't know about her yet. It's been one of my biggest things was learning about, to your point, all the different things that she has impacted. One of my greatest joys uh, was seeing um Matthew Burgess, he he created, a, he's an author, a children's book author, and he created a book called Make Me While Sing. And seeing children's books suddenly enter the space brings me great hope that future generations are, are going to know about Carita and be inspired by Carita. Um, again, we're on the have the good fortune of receiving those those little love letters in the mail and drawings. Um, I still have, we had a Girl Scout troop actually drew Carita Studio during the campaign to save Carita Studio and sent them to us. And sometimes when you're head down working and you don't know who's watching or who's listening and, and that's a great honor. Did you know things like little letters like that were going to start popping up in the mail before you took this position? <laughs> no, not at all. And can I, we, um, I now, new staff, when we do have new staff, I just kind of prep them of just wait. We receive um, 
such kind words of encouragement. I'm sure a lot of workplaces do not have this um, from her students, from Immaculate Heart community members, from uh, different creatives, just, hey, we love what you're doing. Please keep going. And when you have a really rough day in a nonprofit arts organization, pulling out those letters really help ground the, the work that we're doing um, in the arts does. It has that ripple effect that we may never be able to see ourselves, but it does exist. And I think that is part of her legacy as an educator. Um, we all have an educator who we can think of immediately where we can kind of feel their hand on our shoulder and guiding us. And and she's doing that for us. Hmm. Mine is Mrs. Graham from third grade. What's yours? Oh, I would say I was greatly inspired by a professor I had very close to the end of my time um, at, in Portland. Uh, his name's Harold Fletcher, and he started KS Mocha, if you're familiar, or he has a program at KS Mocha and um, the social practice program there at Portland State. Hmm. It really changed the lens that I had on uh, community practice and engagement around fine art, but also just in human interaction um, and valuing one another. What was that lens? Like, how was how did that shift? What was that shift? Um, you know, I, I had been quite studious <laughs> as an art historian mm-hmm. in, in many ways. And this idea that game of Scrabble and the offering strangers to come and join you for like there is an art form to how we live our lives and our intention is really part of the art um, of social practice and uh, I met a, a lot of wonderful people and there's uh, it's been really amazing to see that program grow and and take shape and to see many artists invited into different museum spaces really in the last you know decade or so and thinking about how we engage engage people with with the collection it, it's uh really exciting to see that happen if you're not familiar the Portland Art Museum actually has a wonderful program that they do there with the social practice art uh, uh I don't know if it's happened in recent years but it was called shine a light and Oh, it's delightful. I I fully invite you to keep keep investigating there because I suspect you would like it. Um, but it's a way of engaging people, you know, um, bringing people into museum spaces where it's not a white wall experience. You're not just a viewer. That's correct. And I think, you know, my background, I'm a, you know, first generation college student and there is these spaces, you, sometimes you don't feel that they're made for you or there's an open invitation. And I do hope with Carita Art Center that we are creating something that isn't just a white wall experience. It is a come in, have a cup of tea or coffee, and let's let's get to know one another. And I think that I look forward to seeing that happen more often within uh, museum spaces. Definitely. Do you have a relationship with education with that stuff? Like we were talking about in, in a 
things being a little bit more interactive or just not just a white wall viewer sort of idea. I just I think about Karita and how much her work was about interacting and creating things, co-creation. Yes, exactly. And um, I think often when I speak of the invitation within museum spaces, it is sometimes in speaking with with guests or visitors, there is a hesitation because it feels like a language they don't they don't speak. There's an eagerness to learn, and there's a, a heartstring that is an understanding. But um, I always come back to that white wall as a description of how do we invite people into the process and, and value their perspectives too. And so I think that whenever we um, do have Karita exhibitions, you know, we have a, a healthy loan program and we just launched a university tour program called Heroes and Shiros, centering her Heroes and Shiros body of work um, that's just for universities. And part of the conversations we have with the universities that do take it on loan is we're so excited that you have it. We want you to build curriculum around the, this work that is cross diet offers cross dialogue but also it's really been such a pleasure to see how students have adapted at each of these universities whether it is a, a box installation that they've created within in the gallery space whether there's food donations or voter registration you know it really takes shape and can be molded um, and that way it continues the same practice of activating the art and and the message within the art that's beautiful it's such a great way of, of showing her work and just it being through that process i was i couldn't think of a better way of doing it actually yeah I, it's it just started it's just been piloted so um we're we're curious to see how it grows it goes back to the 10 rules consider everything an experiment yeah yeah it does. Um, <laughs> and there's a there's a good amount of that too <laughs> If you need a pilot program, I'm sure there's some in Chicago that would be more than honored. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And that that series in, in and of itself really offers a lot of dialogue to, I think, um, contemporary issues. You know, it was created in 1968, 1969, and shortly after seeking dispensation from her vows. So it feels as though all of these things bubbled out of her that perhaps she may not have been able to address um, while she was sister Krita, but she could address as Krita can. I know there was some contention between her and um, some of the more conservative parts of the community. Um, do you know what really precipitated her um, in her disavowing? I think only she could actually answer that question. Um, there are hints when you're you are going through the archives and there is a story to be told I think ultimately she was quite tired and exhausted um you know she had she had gone on sabbatical before dispensation from her vows and at this time she was on the cover of Newsweek she was becoming the face of a larger movement within Vatican II as it relates to this and I do think she was a lightning rod both a lightning rod um, for, at the time, Cardinal McIntyre, who, you know, without going too into it, ha took took issue with her her artwork and her practice and 
and the larger Immaculate Heart Order. But she was also a lightning rod of inspiration to her students. And I can imagine being that would would be a lot of pressure. Yeah. So I don't think anyone can really, frankly, answer that because it's beyond moving. It's beyond leaving. It's a very spiritual decision to make. And what is what is beautiful is the work that she makes both shortly after when she moves out to Boston and Cape Cod, um, but that she continues throughout her the rest of her life. She was equally giving. She really... Um, knew the value of her work and sold her artwork, but also gave her artwork and did commissions for causes that she cared about, sold for for legal fees for <laughs> some of her contemporaries and friends who um, were maybe more on the radical uh, religious left. And, and so I do think that was where she felt that she could best support. Who were some of her friends? Oh, that's why I said there's this seven degrees. There's <laughs> <laughs> always like, how did they know each other? This is yeah. correct. Um, but I do think, uh, you know, of course, Daniel Berrigan is is someone that I come to immediately as um you can tell that there was inspiration from from both sides um in their relationship from one another and their correspondence are really delightful. Um, and some of those are actually uh, at the archive there in Harvard, where you can see where they would tear out a magazine and circle messages and then write something and then mail that to one another mm-hmm. as, uh, as a way of corresponding. Um, but certainly there was quite a few notable creatives that came through the Immaculate Heart College campus, um, specifically um, around the time that Sister Magdalene, um, Sister Mag for short, was, was president and head of the art department. And she was really Karita's mentor. But people like, um, you know, of course, Ray and Charles Eames, uh, Salvas, Buckminster Fuller, you know, the list kind of goes on and on of um, thought starters and creatives that, that came through the campus. Impressive to think of um, a lot of notable names around from that time, and the fact that she was influencing and, and participating in those conversations. Yeah, well, I think artists don't work in silos, no, and, and I, I think that that's something that we're hoping to demystify as the Creed Art Center is. Yes, she was a nun, but she was also very much aware of what was happening in New York, and she would take her students to gallery exhibitions. And she would have seen the same shows that her male contemporaries were seeing and um, and drawing inspiration and conversation around. And I think maybe you alluded to it earlier. I do think she had maybe more freedoms because she was a nun in, in some respect, a nun of this order, which allowed freedoms that maybe other orders did not. Um, but that she was at a lecture series that toured the U.S. and spent time in New York and in other artist studios. You know, we have a photo of her in Rothko's studio, for example. And to think, um, I don't know if perhaps all women of that time period would have had that freedom to maybe move about within a system that wasn't built for them. 
Well, I think that that um, all of this, it's just been, it's been really fun to sit down and just kind of have conversations around someone who I think is really influential for a lot of people and to not just dive into the history about what she did or exactly just um, recall certain pieces of art, but kind of get into the why or the how of things. Um, so I definitely appreciate your time. And Yes. Yeah. We have a show. Actually, the Heroes and Sheroes are opening at St. Mary's and it's at the same time, there's actually a uh, a show with Lisa Cogden. That's also her love her work. Yeah, she's great. She was um, part of the book with the um, rethinking the rules, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, a Portlander, but <laughs> uh, I see there, I see that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but she's really fantastic, and she has a show concurrent to the Heroes and Sheroes that will be at St. Mary's in the Bay Area. So, thank you for inviting. This was really a wonderful chat. Wonderful. It's all I. It's all I'm looking for. It's all I'm searching for. Um, is to just have a little conversation around how we all make meaning in life. So um, definitely thank you for your time and I look forward to it. Yeah, we can't wait to host you. And I'm going to send you that essay, the anti-nuclear essay, because uh, I I just know you're going to feel it deep down when you read those those words. Oh, that would be wonderful. I would definitely would love to. So good. Well, thank you. And um, again, we can't wait to host you. Well, I will see you then. Thanks. Thank you. Bye.